0: Welcome back to the Parasports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Lindsay Zabrook. Lindsay is a Paralympian. She was part of the women's wheelchair basketball team that won the bronze medal in Tokyo. And she's a wheelchair basketball player, obviously. (laughs) So welcome to the program, Lindsay. Thank you. I'm grateful to be here. Oh, it's good to have you. So, Lindsay, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your impairment and how you got into playing wheelchair basketball?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I am a Portland-bound native in Portland, Oregon. I grew up there on a Christmas tree farm right next to my grandparents with my mom and dad, and brother. Mm-hmm. And all of my life, I was really into sports. My mom didn't want to drive me too many places though. So she's like, all right, you got to pick one sport and stick with that because otherwise I would have done every single sport in the book. Mm -hmm. So ultimately I decided to start doing basketball. Right. And I was, I was a baller for my age on the middle school team. Like a little bit about me is how much of a live sports is when we go to church in the mornings on Sunday, I would have a dress on, but I would have basketball shorts on right underneath them. So the second church was done, I would run off to the gym, strip my dress off and start playing football with the boys Mm -hmm. and basketball or whatever sport we decided to play as kids. So I was perfectly able-bodied until 13 years old. And when I was 13 years old, I was a freshman in high school I was homeschooled, so we just moved things a little bit quicker, Mm -hmm. and I went to my first able-bodied basketball camp with the team, and we were probably about two, three days in of just a lot of hard work, and I wasn't used to that kind of training, so and really the whole team wasn't, and we were all really sore, Mm -hmm. so our coaches were like, oh, let's do a bunch of stretching to loosen us up this morning. We got some games this afternoon. Let's do yoga. And none of us had ever done yoga. We didn't even know what yoga was. (laughs) So you can imagine having about 14 high school girls in a room watching a YouTube video (laughs) of doing all these different (laughs) stretches and poses. And we were falling over. We were laughing. And it was just a hilarious thing to watch. (laughs) But I remember doing the pose downward dog. And I don't know if you know what that is, but that's where you have your feet and your hands on the ground and your butts in the air. And you're kind of making like a little triangle. And the video said, all right, push your heels into the floor. So I tried doing that. And all of a sudden, I felt this pain in my back. I'm like, oh, that's weird. I must have just stretched it a little bit too much. Mm. So I didn't really think much of it. And I remember immediately like going to breakfast afterwards and not being hungry at all, which was is very weird for a 13-year-old kid that mm. eats absolutely everything in sight. So slowly throughout the day, I started noticing some weird abnormalities in my body. Like after 12 hours, I was kind of losing. I couldn't remember how to kick my right hamstring up and like kick my butt during warmups. So I was physically grabbing my leg and actually pulling it through the motion like, oh, yeah, remember how to do this? Okay. And then that night I was having some really bad nerve and hip pain. Mm -hmm. Well, the next day I started noticing that I was losing balance more and more. Like I would try to walk straight like toe over toe on a uh, tiles of the floor. And every single time I tried to keep a straight line, I would fall to the side and I couldn't figure out why. Mm. My teammates thought I was just being a gesture because that was kind of my personality. But the next day after a whole nother night of nerve pain, I remember waking up and I grabbed my leg because I was like, oh, that's weird. I, I can't really stand up right now. Mm. And I actually physically grabbed my leg and threw it, ex- expect like expecting my muscles to catch it. And instead, I heard this Like this thunk Mm -hmm. where my heel hit the floor and I didn't feel it. I'm like, oh, that's not good. So I call my mom and was like, hey, I can't stand up. You should come get me. And she's like, well, do you think you can make it through the camp? It's only like I'm coming to pick you up in a couple hours anyways. And I'm like, I really can't stand. She's like, all right, right, I'm going to come get you. Mm -hmm. So. Eventually they, they get me, we go to a hospital in Newport, Oregon, and they're like, okay, we do not have the instruments for this. We're going to ship you off to Portland. So then one nice three hour hospital trip to the <sighs> ambulance later, I was there. I ended up getting misdiagnosed for a month of being in the hospital with transverse myelitis. Wow. And eventually I had this micro neurosurgeon just happen to see my case. And at the time there was only two pediatric micro neurosurgeons in the country One was somewhere on the East coast and one was happened to be in Portland. Mm. And we went in for a consultation meeting and she was like, Hey, I heard this happened. I want to look at your case. And then she looked at my case and she was like, can we get surgery tomorrow? Wow! And I was like, wow. So what turns out happening is I had a tethered cord, which I don't know if people know, but that's when you're a baby in utero and your spinal cord is supposed to attach to your L1 vertebrae, which is about your hip level. And mine attached to L2, three. So a bit lower, Mm. And the way I like thinking of what happened is if your spinal cord is like a bungee cord, it's supposed to move and it's supposed to bend when you move, but eventually it can't stretch and bend any further. And that's kind of what happened to me during that stretch. Mm. I didn't snap it. It just overstretched. So that onset paralysis and here I am. Wow. That's
0: mind blowing. Yeah. I don't do yoga no more. (laughs) Wow. Wow. And so you were in hospital for a month until they diagnosed you properly, correct? Yeah, I had gone through two weeks
1: of inpatient and then kind of two weeks at a rehab hospital. Mm -hmm. But I was so strong from all the basketball I'd previously done. They're like, well, normally people are just in the rehab hospital longer because they're just so weak. Mm -hmm. But I immediately was like, all right, yeah, I can push a wheelchair and I can go do this. And they're like, you're good enough. Okay. And
0: so the surgery that you had what did they actually do? So I had a lysis of the tethered cord surgery
1: where basically I have an inch scar probably around t12 of my back and they go in and they cut the tethered cord so there's a lot of different strands inside your spinal cord like motor and sensory but one of these strands was bright purple compared to the other like milky white and red ones and that was the one that had no oxygen coming to it and that was the problem child. So they literally, they had a couple pictures where you could see it. You could see the, like the knife or the scissors on it. And then you couldn't see it anymore.
0: Mm. So it's probably shriveled up in my back somewhere. somewhere. And so as a result of that, what function and what sensation were you left with? Before the surgery,
1: I was like hips down, complete paralysis, and honestly, probably up to my belly button, I couldn't feel anything. Mm -hmm. And then immediately after the surgery happened, I started regaining a little bit more motor function and a bit more feeling. So I can't walk, but I do have like a little bit of hip flexor. It doesn't do a lot of good, but it kind of freaks people out if I move it every once in a (laughs) while. So I just keep it around. And I can feel basically everything from my hips up like maybe a little bit, not on my low back. Mm-hmm. But you've got no sensation to the lower limbs. Not like I have this weird buzzing, tingling, but mm-hmm. basically nothing, else. no tactile feeling unless something hits me really hard and then I just get nerve pain that's referred up through my legs and hips and back.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. And so what happened then in terms of did you find wheelchair basketball pretty much straight away or was there a transition where you tried some other sports no, so for me, when I was in that rehab hospital,
1: one of my rehab nurses was actually the head coach of Portland's junior wheelchair basketball team <laughs> and she came up to me one day and she was like, "Hey, so I heard you're a basketball player. How would you like to try this?" And I mean she got me in a basketball chair and at this point, I had no balance and no sense of my body whatsoever. So sitting up was a struggle, mm-hmm. let alone being in a very a chair that would make me a lot more agile. I needed to find like my center of gravity in my body a bit better. Mm -hmm. So she kept in contact with me. And eventually she was like, hey, come out to one of our practices. And my mom really pushed me to do it. I didn't really want to do it. But the second I got into a practice and I actually just started running into people and I could feel breeze through my hair again because Mm -hmm. I was going so fast, I fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. And so how old were you
0: at that point? 13. Wow. And then... Did you specifically target a college to go to that had a wheelchair basketball program?
1: Yes. So probably my junior, senior year of high school, that was kind of when I first started getting like noticed on the wheelchair basketball stage Mm -hmm. because I came out of nowhere. I took a year off to figure out how to live with a disability and figure out my body. And then when I started showing up, people were like, ooh, who's this girl? Mm -hmm. Who's this? And I was reached out to by Texas like the University of Texas Arlington, University of Illinois and University of Wisconsin Whitewater. Mm-hmm. So I was planning to go to a private, probably Christian school back at home until I realized, oh, wow, I actually have, I might have something in this sport if I continue playing
0: wow and so what's your classification and what's your main role like what position do you play on the team so i am a
1: 2.5 the way i explain it is i have basically nothing below my hips and everything above my hips Mm -hmm. i can't turn as well to one way as the other but i make things do with enough momentum and my general role is to be a ball handler or a shooter I'm really not good as a post player because I just don't have that much balance. And this five foot four wingspan is not taller than most people. So, mm. but I like staying away from the defense and shooting from the outside, but I love being very physical on defense and getting in your face.
0: Mm. Okay. And what's your current training look like? What What would you do kind of through an average week if it wasn't leading up to a major competition?
1: Probably an average week for me. Would, if we're going to go in college practices, we have like five days a week, we're doing on court training for two hours at a college division. And then three times a week, we have some kind of weights, which depending if it's in season or after season or kind of a lull, like the beginning conditioning stages, we would do either strength and power or more endurance with that. I always get in a couple hours of shooting just on my own or a couple fine finesse things that I know I need to work on. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was training for the Paralympics, I probably spent around 25 hours a week just in my ball chair. Yeah. Okay. Working on my craft.
0: And and how often would you go to training camps, for example, when you were you know leading into Tokyo?
1: Well, COVID not being a factor, <laughs> we would probably go once a month. Mm-hmm. For like we would fly in, play three days of basketball, and then fly out the next day. So about five days out of every month, we would go and train.
0: Yeah. And were you one of the younger athletes on the team leading into Tokyo?
1: Yeah. I mean, the age kind of averages out because we have some older people who are almost to their 40s. But then for a lot of my career, we had people who were 17 and 18. And mm-hmm. while I still am really young, like I'm, I'm 24, I am mm-hmm. one of the more experienced ones on the team who have been there the longest. Mm. So I guess I feel old, even though I'm not actually by day old.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're still a baby relative to most of them. <laughs> You're also one of the younger athletes that I've interviewed, so it's good to have the perspective of of a youngster on the podcast because I think I've uh, interviewed a lot of older, more experienced athletes and it's good to have someone who's a bit fresher. Well, my teammates do call me grandma, (laughs) so
1: (laughs) they say I'm... um like 17 going on 70 for the longest Uh, time. So I'd like to think I'm an old soul uh, heart. Fair enough.
0: And so what about your nutrition now? You're a collegiate athlete. So do you you stay on campus or are you in your own residences where you can cook for yourself? This is the first year that
1: I am not living in a dorm. I've spent five and a half years living in a dorm and I'm very grateful to be in my own apartment. Mm -hmm. For the last probably two or actually almost more probably two or three or four years I have started cooking by myself because I think the dorm food is absolutely nasty (laughs) you can get the job done with it but it doesn't mean that you're going to enjoy doing it and I like to cook because I like to eat Mm -hmm. and eat good food so I do all my own cooking with the occasional I'll stop by and grab something but I much prefer to cook by myself
0: cool and so how do you put your nutrition together give us a kind of run through of what a typical day of balancing training getting the right foods in and college life so
1: typically, I would get up probably around 6.30am. And then I tr- I'm i not big on eating before training. Like I know I need to get stuff in. Otherwise, I will feel horrible. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it just does not sit in my stomach well. So I'll at least try to drink a little bit of juice or even maybe like one piece of toast with not a lot on it, maybe a little bit of peanut butter and jelly, like something to get me a little carbs to get going. Mm -hmm. And then I'll go do a two-hour training session, which immediately following that, we have weights for another hour. Mm. So I'll try to get in either like munch on something near the end of my session or get a quick bite to eat of maybe like an apple or something before weights start. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as weights are over, I know I need to replenish all the stuff I lost. So I'll be sure to drink a lot of fluid because i be a sweaty lady uh-huh. and I'll get in my like a, probably around 15 to 20 grams of protein as well as 30 to 40 grams of carbs to yep. replenish just what I want and to feed my muscles to build growth mm-hmm. and then after that that's kind of my lunch slash recovery meal
0: can you give us a couple of examples of what that might look like like what sort of protein and what sort of carbs what give us an idea of what that might look like So an easy thing if
1: I'm off campus, like like not going back to my apartment, if I'm packing the next day, normally I'll grab leftovers from last night, which would be some roasted vegetables. I eat very lean and clean because that's the way I grew up. So Mm -hmm. I might have some ground elk or venison in there in some kind of stir fry mix. Fried rice is always a great way to use leftovers. So I'll make a very protein heavy fried rice. Mm -hmm. And that way I can get my veggies in and get my carbs in and get my protein in and a little bit of fat going. Those are probably my favorites to put some kind of roasted vegetable, some kind of fruit in there, a lean source of protein, and then find another more substantial things of carbs.
0: Mm -hmm. Cool.
1: Typically midday, I don't do super heavy on the carbs though.
0: Yeah. And then after that? After that, I'll
1: probably go do homework or go home for a few hours. And I really like just shooting hoops in the evening when there's nobody else in the gym and I can kind of turn up the music really loud and just be in my own world for a bit. After that, I might put in some some cardio with my shooting mm-hmm. just so I can get my heart rate up and simulate a game time decision of, "Oh, this is at the end of the game, my arms are tired, I need to shoot well." Mm-hmm. And I'll put myself in that mental setting. After that, I'll typically rehydrate with some fluids, maybe do a protein shake if it was a super heavy thing and mm-hmm depending on when I finish, that could be my dinner. And then after that, I'll go home, maybe have a snack before bed if I'm really hungry so I don't wake up in the middle of the night and I try to sleep a good six hours.
0: (laughs) Yeah, doesn't sound like there's a lot of time for sleeping in there. (laughs) Nah, it's all time management. And what about the snacks? What What are the types of snacks that you might choose?
1: So I personally like these bars called Pure Protein because... Although I eat a lot of meat, I'm also trying to like gain muscle at the moment. I've had some shoulder injuries mm-hmm. and I've lost muscle. So I'm really trying to make sure that I don't lose any more in like the slower training months. So I'll be eating those protein bars. Right now, I'm a big fan of oatmeal, mm-hmm. which is super easy and quick to make. You got a microwave, you're going to be able to make it. I don't mind pieces of fruit. They're just not the primary thing I'll go for mm-hmm. so I would say mostly I live off of bars and oatmeal at the moment
0: mm.
1: cool and seaweed I eat a lot of seaweed seaweed yes
0: mm. how do you have that is that dried or and like flaked or how do you usually have the seaweed
1: yeah they're d- dehydrated like little mini packets you can get them from Trader Joe's but these almost I don't know two inch by three inch like sheets of it mm-hmm And I either eat it with a meal, like I can grab it and pinch some rice and eat it like that, or Mm. I'll just eat them straight because they're absolutely delicious. Mm. And you can get them different flavored or just sea salt. Wow. I think they're refreshing.
0: Cool. And I hear that you also are pretty keen on beekeeping.
1: (laughs) Yes, my family does do beekeeping. (laughs) I like natural honey and we like supporting the environment, so... Awesome. Zerberg, the beekeeper.
0: (laughs) Cool. And so, you know, being a collegiate athlete, it sounds like you're a little different than what a lot of college athletes are in terms of your nutrition. Do you find that you do stand out a little bit from other collegiate athletes or are you finding that a lot of them are pretty serious about their nutrition as well? I think I stand out because...
1: Like for me personally, when I I spent five years at Wisconsin Whitewater Mm -hmm. and when I started, I was a bright eyed 17 year old freshman. And when I ended, I was, I think, 22. But I didn't know anything about nutrition during most of my career because we didn't have a dietitian or I really didn't know that we had access to a dietitian at the college. Mm -hmm. So all of the information I had, was based off of YouTube videos or random things that teammates wanted to try. Mm. So I ended up trying a ton of different diets, some healthy, some unhealthy, just trying to figure out, oh, what can I do to become the best athlete possible? Mm -hmm. And slowly as I progressed on Team USA and got to work with Sally Bowman, I learned, oh, this is proper nutrition. This is what I can do that is gonna fuel me and fuel my needs throughout all these training workloads and help me get like stronger and more fit for USA. Mm -hmm. So I'm currently trying to help my teammates out by providing them the same knowledge, stuff that I wish I had when I was a freshman. Something that's also been a challenge for me is realizing that based on my disability, I have different energy needs than a lot of able-bodied athletes. Mm-hmm. Like if like for example, I only need around 1500 calories to maintain if I'm not training. Mm-hmm. And to a lot of people that seems like such a low number, but also I don't really I don't use my legs. Yeah. So, just trying to be like, "Oh wow, I really want that, really want that," but I know that if I'm not training, then I have to adjust for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And was that a hard sort of learning in terms of did you have some issues with your your body composition at any point in time or have you actually found that your appetite is pretty good at telling you how much you need to eat
1: that is something that i've had to work on very hard for the last four or five years Mm -hmm. i am very much an emotional eater And I know that now, but I used to go to the point of where I wouldn't eat if I was like having a lot of emotions. And then I went to a point a couple like a year later where I would eat every single thing in sight Mm. It's because I was very emotional. So it's been a fight to find the balance of, okay, instead of directing all my emotions and coping with food, what else can I cope with? Mm. Okay, I could go do exercise, but also you exercise 25 hours a week and at a point it just becomes overtraining. Yeah. So I've had to find other avenues like building puzzles or just going on walks and finding other ways to relieve the stress by eating.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's a common issue that a lot of athletes have is separating out what they need to have from a physical perspective and from a sporting perspective and the emotional and social aspects of eating and nutrition. Do you find that that a lot of your colleagues are also struggling with the same issues?
1: I believe they do.
0: Yeah. Well, you are definitely a wise lady with a a young head. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. And so what are you doing at the moment in terms of your study? Are you still studying? Yes, so I graduated Oh,
1: was it last year? It might have been 2021 from Whitewater with a degree in health and human performance, a minor in coaching. Mm-hmm. And from that point, I was done with school because I already had been in it for five years. And I was convinced that I was going to go back and work for the family construction business for the rest of my life because <laughs> I had no clue what to do with my degree. <laughs> but I was at a USA training camp with one of my Alabama teammates and USA teammates, Bailey Moody. And we ended up getting into this conversation of, wow, I really do like nutrition Mm -hmm. and I do have another year of eligibility in college. Wouldn't it be cool if I could somehow pay for at least like a little bit of school or be able to learn a little bit more about this? Mm -hmm. And little did I know, she got on the phone to the head coach of Alabama, Ryan Hines, and she was like, hey, this girl's got another year. You (laughs) should talk to her. And now somehow I'm in my master's going for an degree in human nutrition end goal would be a dietitian but right now I'm just working on my yeah I'm working on my
0: master's and something I love learning about excellent so what are some of the big things that you've learned so far bearing in mind you are still a baby what is what are some of the big things that you've learned
1: just in general about nutrition yeah stay hydrated
0: during travel (laughs) and why is that important
1: If if you do not stay hydrated, it's going to impact your cognitive performance and just your overall being like a day or two later. Mm. And something that we as a team have had to work for, especially in the college division, is when you're on a bus for 17, 18 hours and it is not stopping Mm. and you have a bathroom in the back of the bus. A lot of I feel like para athletes will dehydrate themselves prior to long travel days because, yes, it is inconvenient to get up and pee. But at the same time, what are you doing to your body? What are the effects that it's going to have on your your physical and mental performance for the next day? I don't like feeling dehydrated. I get a headache. I'm slower on my reaction time. And probably the biggest thing that I've learned is just it's as simple as putting a noon tablet inside your water bottle. Mm -hmm. And I'll do that before long flights. The way it was explained to me was if you have a 32-ounce bottle and you put a noon tablet in you're probably only going to have to pee like eight of those ounces out. While if you just have straight water, you might have to pee 24. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a balance of maybe using resources like electrolytes and other kinds of tablets, but also getting your body used to drinking a lot of water so you don't have to pee as often because it will adapt. Aha.
0: Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. The adaptation, I think, is the important aspect on that one as well. And
1: I don't think a lot of people give it time of day to be able to let it adapt because it does take time. It's not going to happen over two, three days if you just start chugging 70, 100 ounces of water if you're used to drinking like 30.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Did you gradually build up over a, a few days the amount of fluid that you drank?
1: Yes. And I really try to do as a before like big competitions Mm -hmm. I'll normally start backing off my caffeine intake and upping up the water intake
0: Mm. oh they kept backing off the caffeine that's an interesting one because isn't that a mainstay for a lot of college athletes it is and
1: not gonna lie I was at a point in my college before I really learned about nutrition where I'd be drinking like 600 plus milligrams a day of caffeine (sighs) and I was just wired at every single moment I would go to bed at midnight, wake up at 5 a.m. and go to practice in sub-zero degree weather. Mm. And I was like, I need this to get through it. I need this to get through it. But then I had like, the, I don't know, this, this kind of light bulb moment when I was 20. Like, oh, my gosh, what would happen if I was at a competition and I wasn't able to get my caffeine? Mm. I feel the headache or the effects of not being able to have this. How would that impact my, my performance? What would happen if I couldn't? So I never wanted that to be a factor during my training, like, oh, what if I don't have this? What if I don't have this? Mm-hmm. So I really try not to be addicted to anything going into a competition. Mm. Not saying a little caffeine won't help, give you a little boost. Yeah. But I don't know if it's always going to be there.
0: Yeah. And so being able to manage the amount and make sure that that's not the, the mainstay of, of what keeps you going. Definitely. Mm. Fantastic. Do you think that there's still a lot that you've I guess got to learn oh I know it
1: as you said I'm a baby I don't know I that much
0: (laughs) cool Lindsay what recommendations do you have for younger athletes you know kids who've recently developed a disability or have had a disability since childhood and maybe getting interested in doing some sports what are what are your recommendations to them
1: I would be saying, don't be afraid, be fearless and go out and try it. You're never going to know if you're going to succeed or fail if you don't do something. And if you don't do it one day, that's okay. But don't let it become a habit of not doing things. Mm. My personal motto through my disability has kind of been, you know what? There's always someone out there who has it probably rougher than me. And, There's a lot of negativity in the world in every single aspect. Mm. So whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to do something to make somebody else's day better every single day and to put a smile on their face.
0: I think that's a fabulous message because you're absolutely true about the fact that there's a lot of negativity out there in the world at the moment or every day. What about any recommendations that you have for coaches? You know, Having been a, a young athlete yourself and then having to adapt to having a disability... How do you think coaches can help athletes either with that adjustment or just in terms of understanding what they're having to manage?
1: I would say get to know your athletes on a personal basis. Get them to know one-on-one. Like I remember being in a basketball chair that really did not fit me. Mm. And when I was young, and this was probably my second year in wheelchair basketball, I was in the tallest basketball chair possible which had no dump, Mm. and for lower classification players who do not have use of their legs, if I'm sitting in that kind of chair, I have no balance whatsoever. If I fall on top of my knees, I have to use my arms to push myself up. And I just – if you get to know your athletes and listen to their recommendations, use your knowledge of basketball and the – like the way chairs work and use their knowledge of their body and come together to be able to find the perfect fit. Mm -hmm. And this could be during drills. It could be as simple as, Ooh, how do I do a layup and not lose balance? Yep. Where do I have to put my hand on my chair? Yep.
0: Yeah. Have you had many coaches that really don't understand the wheelchair component of
1: basketball? I would say it's more prevalent in the junior division. I had one coach in Seattle, absolutely love him. But when he started coaching wheelchair basketball, he knew nothing about it. Mm. And if it wasn't for people like him, we would not, like that team would not have had a coach. And we are very appreciative of him, but it's such a different game. And I'll give my hats off to him. He worked very hard studying film and learning how to do it. Mm. He was consulting his players, and it became a lot more of a group effort to figure out how to coach people with disabilities.
0: Mm. Mm, indeed. I think, I think that's what it is in all aspects of working with people with disabilities is it's a collaborative effort. Do you find that's the same in working with anyone who's like say a sports medicine practitioner or a physical therapist or your sports dietitian? How much do you see that as being a, a real collaborative effort?
1: Uh, it's, it's entirely collaborative. I mean, for one thing, it builds such trust between like the like the dietitian or the doctor and the athlete that that almost speaks more words where I know that you're actively trying to learn about me. Mm. Then I know that you are going to do whatever you can for me and that you're going to have my back. And it almost makes me more willing to work with you or to open up to your ideas and suggestions because we have built that bridge of trust. Mm -hmm. And the exact same thing happens with teammates too, where if we're working together and we build that bridge of trust, it's going to make us stronger as a unit and as a whole.
0: Yep. Well said. Wow. So many things to talk about. And I guess one of the things that I'm really interested in is if you weren't playing wheelchair basketball, what do you think you'd be doing? Well, if I didn't know about wheelchair basketball, I'd be working
1: for my family construction business in an office, probably looking at utility bills for a very long time. Currently, I'm actually looking a bit more into curling. Mm. I went to a random training camp in Denver and I really liked it. It's just a whole different sport because that and that was, I think, last year. And that was the first time in my 10 years of disability that I had ever tried a different sport than wheelchair basketball. Ah yeah so like basketball's been my life but it was like kind of like oh this is also fun and now Alabama is getting ready to start up a track program and who knows maybe I'll learn how to throw track a little bit I'm very open to ideas
0: yeah I mean you're so young you've got lots of opportunities in terms of trying out different sports so yeah why not that's cool well Lindsay I'm well aware that you're a busy lady, (laughs) even though this is your week off from college. So I'm sure you've got plenty of things to get on with. So we'll just, we just have one more question and that's what's your favorite food?
1: Oh, I'm going to go with, oh, can I also do a dessert? I have two. (laughs) One is my favorite food is a marinated deer steak
0: Mm. and my favorite dessert is pavlova. Oh, Wow. That's a very Australian favorite food. So good. Uh, (laughs) Where did you learn about pavlovas from? I don't know. I think my mom randomly
1: made one as a kid or maybe it was at a church potluck, but I was like, this is the best thing ever. The meringue is so good. Mm -hmm. And then it has whipped cream. I am addicted to whipped cream. And then as a kid, I loved any kind of fruit, And then Oregon is really known for all the blackberries. Like we'll go outside by the field by our house and the Christmas trees and we'll just go pick buckets of blackberries and make jam out of them. So we just start throwing blackberries on the top and strawberries and, oh, don't get me started. I could go on.
0: (laughs) I can hear your mouth salivating at the thought of it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, on that note, I'm going to let you go, but thank you very much for your time. And also just for... Your willingness to be sharing your story with us because I think everyone has their own story and I think they're all really important to hear about and I think you've learnt heaps and and you're still such a youngster. There's so much more potential for you to come. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. One of the biggest messages I take away from Lindsay's story is that it's really important to be open to experimenting. And looking for what works well, but allowing time for those changes to actually be implemented. That, you know, if you suddenly change something in your nutrition, but only give it a day or two, you probably aren't going to really understand the true impact. So allowing a little bit more time for your body to adapt because your body is very pliable in many ways and can adapt to a change if you give it sufficient time and space. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any recommendations on people you'd like to hear from or any feedback, please leave them on our website. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Katie Holloway-Bridge, who is a SIP volleyball player.